Good morning, Winona Gospel Church. It's a joy once again to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please grab them and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. The, as you're turning there, I'll, give you, I'll remind you of the background. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to the saints at Colossae while under house arrest in Rome, chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, which he will endure for two long years. He writes to a church that he's never visited, he's never seen any of the people there, and he writes because false teachers were attempting to dilute the gospel of Jesus Christ with false teaching. And where we pick up in Colossians this morning, Paul tells the Colossian church that Christ is supreme, that Christ is sufficient. He's going to magnify Christ as the solution to the false teaching because when, when you and I truly understand the person and work of Jesus Christ, we'll realize that Christ is all we need. Christ is enough for us. So, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? We'll be looking at verses 18 to 20, but I'm going to read from verse 15 to 20. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So reads God's word. You may be seated. The title of the message this morning is Jesus has first place in everything. Jesus has first place in everything. And Jesus must have first place. Like a roof that belongs on the top of a house or a cherry that belongs on the top of a Sunday, Christ belongs at the top of every area of your life. He must be of first importance. The one who is before all things must come before all things. He must be undeniably first, unquestionably observable, intentionally given priority, it must be as clear as day that Jesus Christ is far above everything, including you and me. We need to understand that nothing in all the world, in all of creation, can overshadow Christ. The supreme Christ cannot be hidden, can't be stored away, can't be kept silent from a world that needs to hear the gospel. However, in the midst of our in the midst of living our busy lives in a broken world, many of us lose focus or forget the supremacy of Jesus Christ despite being created by him, sustained by him, and redeemed by him. We place things before him. We replace him with something else. And when that happens, we lose our awareness of the majesty of Christ. We lose our appreciation for the beauty of Christ, and we end up focusing on less important matters, and Christ necessarily gets pushed off to the side, or even worse, even more tragic, forgotten. So let me give you the point of this morning's sermon. Since Jesus Christ is supreme in redemption, we must worship him alone. Since Jesus Christ is supreme in redemption, we must worship him alone. We must see him as he is. We must worship him because he's the only one worthy of our worship. Earlier this week, as I was waiting in, the, in my car 
for a doctor's appointment, I noticed an optometry office next door. And there was a big ad that was plastered right in front of the entire storefront window. On it was pictured a man with glasses, and pictured next to that man was, a, was a, one of those big eye exam charts. You know, the one with the big, unmistakable E at the very top. And it's followed by descending lines of letters that get smaller and smaller underneath that big solo E at the top. And as you know, the, the eye chart is used to measure visual acuity. Optometrists use it to screen people for vision impairment. Like someone who may need their vision corrected, our vision of Christ in his rightful place can also get impaired. We can suffer from spiritual vision loss. Our eyes get focused on other things. Our attention is found in other things, and our time is given to other things. We don't see him. We don't notice him. We forget about him. He's like the big E on the eye chart. He's undeniably first, unquestionably observable, and as clear as day. Yet, sometimes we can easily miss him while in the full swing of schedules, deadlines, parenting, and keeping the house in order. We don't intend for that to happen, but it tends to happen more than we like to admit. As the song goes, we need Jesus to shine into our night. Here are some words from that song. We are not what we should be. We haven't sought what we should seek. We've seen your glory, Lord, but looked away. Our hearts are bent. Our eyes are dim. Our finest works are stained with sin. And emptiness has shadowed all our ways. Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Drive our dark away till your glory fills our eyes. Jesus Christ, shine into our night. Bind us to your cross where we find life. This morning, as was true last time, Christ is going to be set before our very eyes. The Apostle Paul is going to bring us face to face with Jesus Christ in all of his glory. He's going to make it perfectly plain that Christ is supreme and he is and he has first place in everything. So in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, we're going to see three reasons why Christ alone deserves our worship. So if you're taking notes, here's the, here's the outline. Number one, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Number two, Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. Number three, Jesus Christ is the reconciler of all things. To give you a brief recap of, last, of the last sermon, we looked at five theological truths that demonstrated Christ's supremacy in and over creation. We learned that Christ is supreme in creation because he's the absolute of creation. He's the absolute image of God, the absolute sovereign over all of creation. And because he is, he ought to be the absolute of your life. Second, we learn that Christ is the agent of creation. God the Father entrusted the act of creation to his Son, Jesus Christ. Everything that is, everything visible and invisible, was created by Christ. Third, we learn that Christ is the aim of creation. All things were created by him and through him and for him. He's the goal of all creation. Everything exists to display his glory. Fourth, we learn that Christ is the already of creation. He's before all things. He's eternal. There wasn't a time when Christ was not. And fifth and, and lastly, we learn that Christ is the anchor of creation. He holds the universe together. He made it all. He sustains it all. And it all continues because of him. We learn that everything revolves around Christ because he's all and in all. Now with that in mind, Paul's going to continue this weighty and glorious description of Christ. Like a strong tower that's impenetrable and immovable, Paul is stacking description after description of Christ to show that nothing can topple 
Christ over. Nothing can move him from his place of supremacy. Nothing can take him down from his position of preeminence. So let's begin by looking at this first reason. Since Jesus Christ is the head of the church, we must worship him alone. Verse 18a. Look, at, look, look, at, look down at your Bibles. And he is the head of the body, the church. Again, last time we learned that Christ is supreme over all of creation. This morning, we're going to learn that Christ isn't just supreme over first creation, but also over new creation, the church. And just as all of first creation looks to Jesus Christ, so does the church, so does the new creation also look to Jesus Christ. The hymn, which we will sing as our final song by Samuel John Stone, written in the 1860s, called The Church's One Foundation, describes the church's relationship to the foundation of the church, Jesus Christ. The first verse goes like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Christ is the head of the church because he came and sought her and purchased her with his own blood. This metaphor that Paul uses for the head and body referring to Christ and the church isn't something new in Paul's letters. We find it in many other places of scripture. However, here in in our passage, here in our passage, Paul is not describing something about the church. The metaphor isn't talking about what the church should do or how the church should function. And of course, there's application for us as a church. But first, we need to understand the meaning before we can properly apply its significance to our lives and the life of this church. This is a statement not about the church, but about Christ, who is the head of the church. This is a statement highlighting the authority of Jesus Christ. There's no church without Christ. A body is useless without its head. We can't forget something crucial about the head of the, of the church. Jesus Christ is not only the head of the church, he's the living head of the church. And as you know, the church began on the day of Pentecost. The church was established after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, Paul tells us that. He tells us, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Then he says, and God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church exists because the tomb is empty and God the Father gave Christ as head over all things to the church. The church exists because Christ defeated death, because Jesus rose from the dead. And because he's resurrected, because he's living, he guides, governs, leads, has authority, gives life and vitality to his body, the church. Christ is our head. He's our master, our Lord and King. And that means that Christ controls every part of the church. He leads and directs the body. He's the supreme leader of this church. He's the head pastor, if you will, of this church. We need to understand that Winona Gospel Church isn't our church, it's Christ's church. No pastor or elder in this church is the head. Instead, leaders have delegated authority from the head, Jesus Christ. Last time we learned that Christ is supreme over creation. And if Christ is supreme over creation, then surely he's also supreme over the church. He's its active, present, living head 
who not only directs and governs the body, but also gives it life and strength. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, it talks about how the body, as it holds fast to the head, grows with a growth that is from God. We only grow as the body as we hold fast to Christ our head, who's the head of this church. It's been well said, if a body doesn't hold fast to its head, it can hardly hope to survive. The church doesn't exist primarily for the body. I'll say that again. The church doesn't exist primarily for the body. The church doesn't exist to primarily meet the needs of its members. The church doesn't exist to connect and fellowship with one another primarily. Although those things are all good and right and true, they're not the primary God-intended purpose for church. The church exists to fulfill the purposes of its head. The church exists to fulfill the redemptive purposes of Jesus Christ. The church exists primarily to worship and glorify one person, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and to proclaim him to all the world through the preaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, as I stated earlier, the focus of this verse isn't the church. The focus is, is Jesus Christ. Yes, the body is to mutually depend on one another, one another, but we're to totally and completely depend on Christ. We're only related to one another, one another because of our relationship to Christ, our head. The glory of Jesus Christ is seen by his uniting himself to a sinful humanity that we might become one with the God of the universe. And one of the, one of the things that I despise, Kat will tell you this, one of the things I despise is taking photos. Kat and I, we like many of the same things, but pictures aren't one of those things. It's one of the areas where one of Kat's favorite things happens to be one of my least favorite things. So family photos or just, being in, just me being included in any kind of picture is a big ordeal in our family. And everywhere we go, it seems to be an occasion to, to bother some stranger and ask them if they can take our picture. Now, I understand if we're on a holiday or vacation or some kind of special family outing, but even then, I have my limits when it comes to taking photos. For example, you know when you go to a carnival and, and they have those wooden character cutouts with the heads cut out, you're supposed to go behind it and stick your face through the little opening, and you can have your photo taken as a, as a silly clown or as a muscle man or some superhero character. That would be something that I wouldn't do. <laughs> However, I know that many of you have had pictures taken that way, and the photos are often humorous because the head doesn't fit the body. Now, if you picture Christ as the head of the body of believers, would the world laugh at its misfit? Or would they stand in awe of a human body so closely related to its divine head? Are we a church looking to Christ our head? Are we looking more like Jesus? How often can we make church about ourselves? How often do we come to church for personal self-seeking reasons? We can easily view church as a place to have our needs met, as a place to attend and receive, but never to commit and be involved in. Needs and feelings has become somewhat of a driving force in today's individualistic society. We hear things all the time of needing something in order to feel good about yourself. Needing to have something or else you'll feel like you're not good enough. But we need to remember that Jesus Christ is the only one who can meet your needs and deepest longings. To look to anyone else or anything else, to put your hope in something else, 
may lead you to temporary, temporary satisfaction, but why settle for temporary satisfaction when you can have full permanent satisfaction in Christ? Come to church not to have your needs met, but to find your need in Jesus. And what you'll find out is the more you're filled and satisfied in Jesus, the more you'll, the more you'll see your need not for other things, but for more of Jesus Christ. As the song goes, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. Christ is the church's life. To say it another way, Christ is the life of the church. He's the supreme head of the church, and the only way we can begin to be in step with the purposes of God is to be living and serving and submitting ourselves under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, our King and our Head. We come to church not for us, but to worship Christ. We come to be nourished and knit together by Christ. We come to behold Christ so that we could become more like him. So since Jesus Christ is the head of the church, we must worship him alone. He's supreme over creation and supreme over new creation. And we need to recognize that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and that we as the body, as believers, we're to live unto him. He's the living head of this church and he rules and governs this church by his living word. Brothers and sisters, the church has no rivals because Christ has no rivals. Do you believe that? Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Let me give you an easy multiple choice question. Who's the head of the church? A, Jesus Christ, or B, none of the above. There's only one right answer, and it's Jesus Christ. There may be critics of the church, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There may be people who try to, who, who hate church, but Christ is still head of the church. There may be people who try to close down churches, but Christ is still head of the church. The church will remain because we are the bride of Christ. And his, with his own blood, he gave himself up for her. And one day, he will come back for her, come back for his bride, and will be with him in glory. And I know this verse is more about Christ than it is about the church. But before moving on, I do want to mention a couple of things. Christ is our perfect head. Praise be to God that Christ is our perfect head because as his body, as imperfect sinners, we need a, a head that is perfect. That, means, that also means that no church is perfect. That means that there will be disagreements. There will be brothers and sisters in Christ who, who don't see eye to eye. But we need to expand our vision. We need to take our eyes off of ourselves, off of others, and onto Christ. Christ, the sin-bearer, has loved us to the point of death. He has forgiven all my sins and all your sins. And that means also the sins of those who, who are sitting next to you. We're a family, and the head is inseparable from the body. So we must be united in the purpose of our head and live in harmony with one another. One another. This reminds me of a quote I read somewhere saying, Christians may not see eye to eye, but they should walk arm in arm. We're going to be with each other for eternity, and that should bring feelings of joy and not dread. And if, if we take Jesus Christ as our head, then we must also take each other as the body. J.C. Ryle famously said, Our Lord has many weak children in his family, many dull pupils in his school, many raw soldiers in his army, many lame sheep in his flock, yet he bears with them all and casts none away. Happy is that Christian 
who has learned to do likewise with his brethren. Let us look to, to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and be captivated. Let us fall into line and take our marching orders from Christ. Let us embrace and cling tightly to Christ as his word governs this church. Let us ponder and think upon his excellencies. Let us stand upon the, the solid rock, Jesus Christ, for all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus isn't only the head of the church, but also the firstborn from the dead. That's our second reason why Christ alone deserves our worship. Since Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, we must worship him alone. Verse 18b. The text reads, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Christ is the beginning, the, the firstborn from the dead. That's to say the church has its beginnings in Jesus. He gives life to the church by his sacrificial death and resurrection. Jesus' resurrection provides new life for all who would believe in him. He's the firstborn from the dead, meaning he's the first to die, resurrect, and never die again. Now, now we know in the Bible there are those who died and resurrected, such as Lazarus or Jairus' daughter or the widow of Nain's son, but they didn't remain alive. They all eventually died again. In other words, of all of all those who have been raised from the dead or ever will be, Christ is the highest in rank. We saw the same word, firstborn, back in verse 15, where Paul says that Christ is the firstborn of all creation, meaning he's the heir of everything. He holds the highest position. He exercises sovereignty and supremacy over all of creation. He's exalted in rank and outranks all things in creation. And the same meaning is used here in verse 18, speaking of Jesus being the firstborn from the dead. Jesus holds the chief position, the highest rank, because he's the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. Jesus conquered death. He was victorious over the grave, and all other, uh, all other resurrections will be based off of his. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23, Paul says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, the firstfruits, and all who put their trust in him will be the promised harvest to come. This fact, this fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ has huge implications for us. There's no Christianity without the resurrection. There's no hope for us as a church if there's a dead Savior. There's no head of the church if Jesus isn't alive. One of my old pastor, pastors tells this story of a time when his mentor invited him to preach at a church. Being a young minister at the time and eager to preach at every opportunity, he didn't hesitate to accept, accept the invitation because his mentor, who had invested so much to his growth and maturity as a pastor and preacher of the word of God. So the day arrived, his mentor sitting in the audience, and he preached a wonderful message. On their way home, pastor was met, met with great feedback. He was told he, he preached an excellent message, he did a great job, and he was thrilled about the feedback until he heard the words, but but you made a major mistake. Unaware of what it could be, he asked, what was it? Let me know, what, what was it? How can I improve? How can I do better next time? He was met with this reply. 
You left Jesus hanging on the cross. Don't ever do that. Of course, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. But on the third day, he was raised according to the scriptures. Never leave Jesus hanging on the cross. Christ isn't dead. He's alive, and he's alive today. And we serve a risen Savior. And just as he lives in resurrection life, just as he lives in resurrection life, so also will we. And this is exactly what Jesus says in John 14, 19. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. Jesus says, because I live, you also will live. We live even as he lives. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. He passed through death into everlasting life and and as his children will follow in his footsteps. We talked about Christ being the living head of the church. And if the head is alive, then we, the body, must also be alive. There's no separation between us and Christ because we're united together alive in Christ. His resurrection marks the beginning of a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 His resurrection is a guarantee of the resurrection that we will enjoy as his redeemed. And that should give us hope. The resurrection is the ground and guarantee of our hope. Our hope isn't wishful thinking. It's certain. As certain as Jesus is alive forevermore, never to die again. Peter calls this hope a sure and living hope. First Peter chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It's been said, Jesus rose again, but our sins did not. And Thomas Watson, you might want to jot this down as well, said this, we are more sure to arise out of the grave than out of our beds. We are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. Since Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, we must worship him. And I think it's safe to say that believer and unbeliever alike, we would all like to live forever. But the truth is there's something that stands in the way of us and forever. And do you know what that is? Death. Death stands in the way of forever. However, Jesus Christ, since he's the firstborn from the dead, offers new life, offers eternal life, offers life after death. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, Jesus says in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Pass from death to life. Jesus has life in himself, and he gives new life to all who repent and believe in him. And in the context of John 5, from the, from the verse I just read, Jesus teaches that everyone is going to be resurrected, believer and unbeliever. Everyone will be literally and physically resurrected from the dead. Those who are born again will be resurrected unto eternal life. On the other hand, the unsaved will be resurrected unto judgment and eternal punishment. 
This is what Revelations 20 and 21 call the second death. And that, although that's a sad reality, it's a true reality. Not because God is unjust or unfair, but because we're sinners and sin kills. God cannot look at sin and turn his face away. He's loving and just, and so he must punish sinners. And apart from Christ, you'll die in your sins because there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. So if you don't know Christ this morning, let me appeal to you. Can you conquer death? Can you survive death? Can you create life where there's no life? The Bible says that it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Nothing and no one in all of creation can conquer death, including all of us who believe. No one, that is, except Jesus. Jesus entered into a world of sinners, became one of us, yet without sin, took on flesh to do what fallen creation couldn't do. And Jesus was the first to do it. He is the only one who could do it. Death died when Christ was risen. And if you turn from your sin, turn from serving idols, and turn to the living God, you'll be saved and pass from death to life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Come to Christ and you'll have life and life abundantly. So whether you're sitting here or listening online, we gather as a church because Christ is resurrected and alive. We meet every Sunday to remember and celebrate our risen Savior, the one who has dominion over death, the one who is master over death. Death doesn't have to have the final word. You can be part of the body of Christ forever because he died and rose again to lead his people, the church, to eternal life. Let's continue on. Look down at, at the second half of verse 18. It says that in everything he might be preeminent. The word preeminent here is only used one time in the New Testament. And it's found right here in our passage. And it's related to the word firstborn. And it magnifies the unique position of Jesus Christ. A good way to describe the meaning of the word is found in Colossians 3.11 where Paul says that Christ is all and in all. In the NASB translation, it says, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's where I get the title of this message. Jesus has first place in everything. He's supreme over everything. He has first place as head of the church. He has first place as firstborn from the dead. He has first place in all of creation. And because of his resurrection, and because his work of reconciliation, which we'll see in our next point, Jesus is preeminent. Romans 1 4 says, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Paul says to the Philippians that God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Christ is preeminent as Creator and Lord, as Savior and Redeemer, preeminent over first creation and over new creation. He's all and in all, supreme in the church, supreme in this church, head of the church and head of this church. Now let me ask you, is Christ preeminent in your life? In your heart of hearts, can you say that Jesus is your life? Can you say as Paul does, to live is Christ and to die is gain? Since Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, we must worship him alone. And because he lives, we will also live. 
And that's hope-filled news. That's news that ought to overflow our hearts with comfort. And it's a promise that we can have full confidence. We can be fully assured of right now, today. Job, at one of the lowest points in his life, facing tremendous despair, we find these words from his lips in Job 19.25. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Brothers and sisters, Christ is preeminent. Christ is all and in all. He's your life, and the same power that raised him from the dead is the same power operating in you and me. We can live lives of joy knowing Christ is resurrected and he's coming again. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So can you say that your only hope in life and death is Christ alone? Because Christ wins, we win, and one day we'll enjoy unhindered fellowship with him. James Milton Black, he wrote uh, an old hymn called When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. The inspiration behind the song was the idea of the book of life that's mentioned in the Bible and also by the absence of a child in Mr. Black's Sunday school class when attendance was taken. The thought of someone not in attendance at church alarmed Black, but the thought of someone not in attendance in heaven haunted him. And the writing of this hymn comes out of that story. One of the verses goes like this, On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And what a day that will be when we rise to meet our Lord, when sin and death will be destroyed and will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Let us worship Christ the firstborn from the dead, the one who defeated death, so that we who believe in him would be guaranteed life after death and even more unending, everlasting life. May we know more of his salvation and seek more earnestly his face. May we hold loosely, may we hold loosely to earthly joys, to earthly comforts, and humbly forsake all things that control us, that Christ may be found more in us. May you fix your gaze on Christ and continue to look to him and look to him and look to him until the day you see him, until the day you're absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And on that day when you see him, your faith will be turned to sight and you'll behold your creator, your redeemer, and your savior. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, and lastly, he's the reconciler of all things. Verses 19 and 20. Since Jesus Christ is the reconciler of all things, we must worship him alone. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. These verses describe what is called general reconciliation. In verses 21 to 23, which we'll look at next time, we'll see specific reconciliation, which deals with Christ's reconciling work for believers. But here in verses 19 and 20, we'll learn that God through Christ will reconcile all things by his death and resurrection. Paul begins by saying that in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's a statement that's, that's declaring the deity of Jesus Christ. Christ is God. In Colossians 2.9, we're told, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means that God was pleased 
that his fullness, the entirety of his being, including his attributes and divine powers, would dwell in his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the full embodiment, the sum total of all divine powers and attributes of God. All of who God is is completely dwelt in Christ alone. God's fullness dwells, resides, resides, makes its permanent home in Jesus. And just think about that. All that God is dwells in Jesus. And therefore, Jesus has supremacy over all things. Christ is the God-man, fully divine and fully human. And God was pleased in his Son that through Christ, God would reconcile, and this is important, God through Christ would reconcile all things to himself on the cross. All things meaning all of creation, whether on earth or in heaven. And this is reconciliation of cosmic proportions. If you know your Bible history, we know at the end of Genesis 2, we have the climax of creation. Adam has been created and Eve out of Adam. And there's a marriage celebration that takes place where the two become one flesh. This was a time when everything was the way it was meant to be. Everything was right as it should be. This was before sin contaminated everything. No death, no sin, no strife, no pride, no lust, no suffering, no fear, no anxiety, no loneliness, no broken relationships, no murders, no adulteries, no sickness, no heartbreaks, no body aches, no headaches. I say all of those things to make the point that there was a time when all was well and just as God intended it to be. One man, one woman, living in perfect harmony and fellowship with God and one another. Then God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the creation. They were to rule and subdue it for his glory. However, when we move into chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the fall of man. Now, the dominion that God gave to rule over creation has been corrupted by sin. And we learn that sin has a deadly effect on all of creation. Genesis 3, 17 and 19 speaks of how because of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, creation itself was also cursed. The ground is cursed so that there would be increased difficulty and pain in working the ground. Man is going to return. Man is cursed with physical death. Man is going to return to the ground for out of it man was taken. Man is dust and to dust man shall return. Those were the immediate effects of the fall. And we know that the effects of the fall weren't just limited to Adam and Eve, but to the entire creation. Creation was subjected to futility, Romans 8.20. All of creation groans together in the pains of childbirth until now, Romans 8.22. Creation waits in eager expectation. Everything is out of joint, waiting to be set back to order. Verse 20 is teaching that nothing in the universe is outside the range of God's work, reconciling work in Christ. God through Christ will reconcile the world to himself. Why? Because everything is wrong. Death reigns where God gave life. Darkness dominates where God said, let there be light. Sin and death have kept in bondage those who were created to have eternal fellowship with God. So God sends Jesus to reconcile all things to himself and bring the whole creation into complete and glorious liberty of the children of God. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 8.21. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We live in a fallen world 
and that should take none of us by surprise. You only have to read the news or take a walk outside to know that we live in a fallen world. It's our everyday experience. The fact that we have laws to follow tells us that there are lawbreakers. There's no hope in humanity, in human justice or laws. And I can say that because the Bible teaches that we're all sinners and lawbreakers. Perfect justice isn't attainable. While it's not easy to live in a broken and sinful world, while we face the sufferings of this present time, while our hearts break and continue to break at the sight of violence, at the experience of seeing health decline or the reality of death itself, take comfort and be encouraged that God will right every wrong perfectly. God is just, holy, and perfect. Don't fear the leadership and direction of earthly authorities, human courts, or government. Don't fear what the president or the prime minister does or doesn't do. We don't put our hope in leaders of a fallen world. Our hope is in God. He will establish equity and bring forth justice to victory. He's our supreme court, and thus we can live peaceably. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's coming a day when all things will be restored. And again, to remind you, reconciliation used here isn't talking about salvation. It's used in a general sense. The object of that reconciliation is all things, all of creation, earthly and heavenly. All things will be reconciled to God. God is going to balance the ledger. He's going to reconcile all accounts. So we need to ask the question, how does this general reconciliation of all things relate to the death of Christ? Or another way to put it, in what sense was the cross working to reconcile all things? And we talked about how the first Adam plunged the human race into sin and death. And because we were given dominion over creation, the fall of humanity meant the fall of creation. Jesus Christ, the greater Adam, the second Adam, makes peace through, his, through the blood of his cross, meaning that Jesus reconciles all things to God. He's the one who will restore the harmony that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Jesus refers to this cosmic renewal as the regeneration in Matthew 19, 28. Paul calls it the restoration of all things in Acts 3.21. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, we're told that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. The earth is headed for cosmic reconciliation and a final settling of the score regarding all evil and injustices in history. God's plan isn't to abandon his creation, but to restore it. What the first Adam failed to do will be fulfilled by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. So how is this accomplished? As we already said, the Son of God giving himself up, taking on the full fury of the Father as our substitute for the sins that we've committed. Because of the work of the Son of God, everything in creation will be, will be restored to its proper relation to God. Everything will be set rightly the way they were always meant to be. And it's through Jesus and Jesus alone that God is going to reconcile to himself all things. And we can't miss this important, the importance of this. It, reconciliation can only take place if Jesus is God. If the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. How, otherwise, Jesus couldn't accomplish reconciliation of, for all things. However, Jesus is God, and Jesus is going to make peace, and he is going to end all hostilities, and he is going to remove all that stands in the way of harmony. He's going to make all things right. And so we must worship him. We've seen how sin disrupted the entire universe. 
original creation, all of it was altered by sin. And when we take a step back and realize the devastation of sin, only then can we realize the beauty and sweetness of our Savior Jesus Christ. It was one sin. It was one sin. All it took was one sin, and the entire creation was contaminated. And that's not an exaggeration. That's the consequence of sin before Almighty, Holy Creator God. Brothers and sisters, we can't take sin lightly. We can't excuse sin as little mistakes. It's much more than a violation or missing the mark. It's the breaking of a relationship and even more, a rejection of God himself. Sin is rebellion of the creature against his creator. And God is perfectly just and will deal with all evil. He's determined never to overlook, ignore, or tolerate sin, including our own. And we need to understand that we've rebelled against a good and righteous king and he required the death of Jesus Christ to address it. So sin ought to shock us. It ought to bring us to our knees in repentance and confession because God is so loving and gracious that every time we sin, God provided his son Jesus Christ. He provides forgiveness of sin so that when we sin, we can go to him and he promises that he will forgive and cleanse us for all unrighteousness. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, John 1.16. Thank God for Jesus Christ who will restore all things and the totality of the curse will be removed from creation. So since Jesus Christ is supreme in redemption, we must worship him alone. In the midst of living our busy lives in a broken world, don't lose focus or forget the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You've been created by him, sustained by him, and redeemed by him. He's the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, and the one who will restore and set creation back in its proper relationship, relation to God. You serve and worship a living head. You serve and worship one who has died, but who has also risen never to die again. And because he lives, we will also live. You serve a God who will put an end to the curse that resulted from the fall of man. Through Christ, all things will be reconciled. Live in light of this truth. Live in light of the living hope that can't be taken away from you, that can't be destroyed and can't be corrupted, all because of the blood of Christ that makes peace. In everything, Christ must be preeminent. May we make it our ambition to keep Christ in his rightful place of preeminence. May we be captured anew with a greater awareness of the majesty of Christ. May we appreciate afresh the beauty, supremacy, authority, and sufficiency of Christ. May we reorient our time and refocus our attention so that we don't suffer spiritual vision impairment. And once again, may we push all things aside because Christ, the one who created all things, the one by whom all things were made through and for, the one who is before all things, the one who heads this church, the one who is alive and well today, the one who will one day set all things right. May we push all things aside and worship Christ so that every area of our life will be affected, influenced, and controlled by Christ. Fix your gaze on Christ and look to him and look to him and look to him until you see him, until you are absent from the body, at home with the Lord, until your faith is turned into sight, and you behold your creator. The same Jesus who created everything is the same Jesus who restores everything. And this is the God we worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. We thank you that in it we learn about Christ who you have revealed to us. I pray that you would reveal more of the hidden evils of our hearts and set us free from self and pride, that you may be all in all you may be all and in all in our lives. Thank you that you are fully pleased to have your, all your fullness dwell in Christ. And as we leave here, I pray that we would have a greater awareness of Christ's person, work, and presence. I pray that we would know that our Redeemer lives, 
that we would know that Christ will reconcile all things so that in the difficulties of life, we can be assured that our hope is living because Christ lives. Thank you that Christ came and died for us so that we could live with him forever in a world free of trials, anxieties, fears, and sicknesses. Father, we praise you, the head of this church. To you be all the glory from this day and forevermore. Amen.